Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. Regular listeners to this podcast are probably pretty aware of my love for a musical happening that occurred in early 1980 Sacramento, California, mostly centered around a church called Warehouse Ministries. The church started a record label called Exit, which produced seminal albums by the 77s, Steve Scott, Vector, Charlie Peacock, and others. We've talked a lot about the 77s and Steve Scott, and today we get to talk about another great artist that was on exit, Robert Vaughn and the Shadows. The reason being that Randy Layton of Alternative Records has started a crowdfunding campaign to re-release Robert Vaughn's Love and War album. Like many of these drives, there are various package deals depending on the amount of money one might choose to pledge. The one I'm most excited about being a two-CD set of remastered tracks and never-before-released material. To help us talk about this period of Robert Vaughn in the shadows is Randy Layton himself, in addition to the 77's Mike Rowe, who kicks off this podcast not only reflecting on his memories of the said artist, but given lots of great history on The Warehouse, Exit Records, and Island Records during those days that promised so much for these beloved artists. What is your first memories of Robert Vaughn and his music? Like, when did you first hear about it? I was part of Exit Records, which was a small independent label in Sacramento. And uh, my job, among many jobs there, was to... uh, answer fan mail and filter through all of the different sort of tapes and things that uh, different recording artists sent us trying to get onto the label. And uh, a lot of them were amusing and terrible and, and it was an entertaining thing to be a part of. But <laughs> at some point we got a submission from Robert Vaughn in the Shadows from San Diego. I'd never heard of them. And I listened to it and was immediately taken with the fact that this was not just an amateur group. These guys already sound like a stadium act doing large anthemic songs that reminded me of, uh, I don't know, Bruce Springsteen or uh, Brian Adams, uh, who else? You know, anyone who did that kind of music. And it seemed fully formed and really together and very well produced the lyrics were intriguing so i got really excited i went to mary neely the label head and jan voles uh, another fellow there who worked with me who was also in my band the 77s jan and i did a lot of this sort of filtering of these tapes that came through and i said jan you got to hear this and uh, he was blown away by it we played it for mary and she was impressed as well so we contacted robert right away and said hey we got your tape uh we think you guys are terrific we'd love to uh 
take this further you know where are, where are you playing are you playing up in northern california any place and they said no but we have a gig i believe it was a high school in a gymnasium or something like that mary said you guys need to just fly down there and go go see him so we got on a plane and went and saw the show. I think I had already decided from the first few moments of hearing the band that this was something we needed to pursue. And it's funny because Robert immediately came up to us after the performance and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, like all he did was apologize for how terrible the set was. And we said, don't worry about it, man. It's like, you know, this is just a, a school gig. We're not focused on any anything you're hearing that's negative we we think you guys are great and uh from that point uh they began the negotiations to uh get on the label and mary signed them and we were really really excited because this was the first sort of non-sacramento act that we had on the label that wasn't in-house from sort of the church that was running this whole thing it excited me because i thought wow, this is a window to the outside world. You know, we were very insular and a lot of the artists on exit were all playing in each other's bands. So so it had this kind of incestuous thing. It was great to get outside of that and uh, get in touch with someone that we thought was extremely commercial, had high commercial potential. From that point, um, I think I flew down there again shortly after and attended a recording session because Robert and the guys were demoing uh, Robert's very prolific songwriting uh, constantly. There was just endless reels of tape, endless songs, endless demos. And And each one of them was great. I was just listening to all this stuff and I'm going... Gosh, you know, it's like, I like everything I hear. All of this sounds like hits to me. It's like, these guys should be huge already. Mm-hmm. So it was really exciting to be around it and watch them uh, put these songs together. And, and Robert kind of, I wouldn't say he ruled with an iron fist, but he was most definitely the leader and all of the other guys kind of looked up to him. They they all seemed a bit younger even though they may not have been. But Robert had this thing about him that was kind of like, you know, a drill sergeant. He really uh, ran the thing. another time they came up to Sacramento and spent a whole weekend doing similar kinds of demos in our exit studio up there and we just stayed up all night one night and I got to watch them put together different uh, songs and and it was thrilling to just hear these songs come together and we, you know we'd I'd watch it build and then it'd get to a certain point and we'd all be in tears because it just sounded so great so I was very, very happy to have been a part of that early time before uh, Exit hooked up with Island Records and then it started to get real serious because now we've got a distribution deal with a major label that is also getting an incredible amount of attention because of you too. Mm-hmm. So at that point, um, I kind of lost touch with 
Robert and the band, and they came under the tutelage of uh, T.J. Tyndall, who produced the Love and War album. I wasn't as involved by that point, but it was certainly exciting to see them uh, get involved with us with Island Records, because I thought, well, here's their big chance now. You know, they really can grab the brass ring, and maybe uh, Island will throw some weight behind it and uh, see where it goes. Did... uh you and Robert Vaughn play any gigs together with the, like the 77s, the two bands? Yes, we did. I know of one for certain that was in March of 1989, but that was a couple of years after Love and War. Mm-hmm. So I cannot remember specifically. I think Randy will probably remember okay. whether or not we played together at any other time. I'm sure we. it's just been a long time sure. ago and... You know how gigs have a tendency to sort of all melt together unless there was something really terrible that happened or something really amazing. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. Otherwise, it's just kind of a, a just a sea of events that kind of just float away from you gradually. Unfortunately, my memories of Robert and the Shadows on Island were negative. And the reason why is because evidently the A&R guy, which whose name escapes me at the moment, he said that rock and roll has a political stance and Robert's political viewpoint was so far from that stance that Island took offense at it. They didn't like the fact that there was a girl with a rifle on the cover. There was a lot of uh, arguing about that and whether that should be on the cover. And I think Robert wasn't the kind of guy to back down. He was someone who definitely was opinionated and uh, didn't want to play the game in order to win favor by the record label guys. So I think that any support that they may have had from Island, apart from just their contractual duty to us and Exit Records, I believe either broke down or got completely eradicated once Robert's views were not going to change or go away. It seems like they began to sort of work against him at that point. And I don't know if they lost interest altogether, but my memory was that, you know, it was a big problem. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but I remember Randy telling me another story on a different podcast about at the Island Records, there seemed to be this resentment or a dismissal of, you know, Christian-y type groups. So my question is, did one person sign you all and Robert Vaughn and the other groups, and then another person end up being the promoter but didn't want to promote it? Or what happened as far as you could tell? None of our groups had an overtly Christian lyrical content anyway that I can recall. So I don't think that was an issue. I think they were more uptight about our politics and about 
the fact that, you know, I think Robert was on the side of the Contras or something like that. And that was really a no-no politically within the sort of liberal, you know, music business, uh, show business world at the time. Right. It's kind of like how Kanye supported uh, Donald Trump. You know, even though he was, Kanye was extremely popular, he uh, created a lot of, uh, you know, trouble for himself by aligning himself with, a, you know, a uh, not liked president, at least as far as that side. The business seems to favor the more liberal uh, candidates and, and people like that. So right. with Island, we were coming up against a similar situation because, like I said, uh, I think the guy's name is Joel. I can't remember, but he was saying rock and roll has a political stance, mm -hmm. you know? So if you're on the side of the Contras, then, you, you know, that's not going to go over well. We can't support that and that sort of thing. But I don't remember them getting on us about our Christianity or telling us, no, you can't sing about Jesus because we, we weren't anyway, at least not overtly. But as far as who signed us, uh, there was a guy named Lou Malia who was uh, sort of a record exec that was in between gigs. And I'm not certain how Mary Neely found him, but he uh, became involved with Exit Records and wanted to help our label. And uh, it was at that point that Chris Blackwell, president of Island, called Lou and said, I need someone to run Island for me. Well, I mean, Island was Chris Blackwell's label. He's the CEO, but he, he needed an acting president, a line president. And... Uh, he wanted Lou to do that. And Lou said, well, I just got involved with all these people in Sacramento. There's this great little label. I'll do it if you can bring them in somehow. So uh, Chris Blackwell flew to Sacramento and we all auditioned for him right there on site. Uh, I don't believe Robert and the Shadows did, but they were just brought into the fold on the basis of Chris deciding that we were all pretty good and that he would be willing to do a deal with us. So once... Uh, Mary brought Robert in. Uh, they liked him well enough to, to let him do a record, you know, and it went on island. But it, like I said, the, the trouble began shortly after that, once they realized what Robert was all about politically. Okay. And uh, just remember there being a lot of lively discussion about this at the time, and it didn't go down too well. <laughs> At this point, Randy Layton relays the story that I referred to earlier about his encounter with one of the staff members at Island. I remember, I mean, it's wearing a lot of hats in those days. So I was not only running the retail store, the chain, actually, and was in charge of buying, but I'm also working on behalf of Exit. And I'm working on behalf of, of, of the artists at Exit. And I'm also taking them to radio, uh, both college radio and and in the arts. So, but I remember promoting the sevens thing, um, you know, that the album that they had out and I, you know, put on shows, uh, with them, you know, I went bought, I, I, I convinced them to buy, you know, ad time and go in on promoting the show in Eugene, uh, which became kind of semi-legendary in our circles. 
for different reasons, uh, the local AOR station had gone four cuts deep on it. There was, it was just nuts. I mean, most of the listeners, and that was like the number two station in the state for album rock, you know? So, um, I just brought them that record and convinced the guy that was the music PD to play it. And it just went insane where listeners were calling in for it. And, and it got to a point where it did, it did so well that putting on the local show seemed like, you know, like a really good thing to do. We not only did that, we also brought them to the station where they did, where they did an interview and all those things. So we, so it was a huge success. Most people in, the, in that audience were not, aware of their very Christian band. They were just there because they, they loved the album, but they were hearing on, on the air. So it, it showed that it could be done, right? That you could take that music to a mutual venue, as I would call it, and have it do really well, <laughs> have it do very well. So I'm sharing that backstory to go, well, then later when I'm trying to replenish the album and get it back and do the stores was a real problem with that. I just used my connections and called up the head of I'm in retail, can't remember his name anymore, and just kind of complained, look, you know, I'm trying to get this done and that done, but, you know, you guys aren't making it available. You know, the warehouses don't have in stock. And then that's when the guy came back to me with, with this quote of, uh, well, they're just a Christian man and that's all they're ever going to be, essentially. And so... That was pretty shocking to me because up until that point, I didn't really think they were thinking in those terms either. And so I took that back to Mary, who wasn't happy about it at all. She went back to Lumalia. But that was the end of, of starting to become, you know, the beginning and the end of that whole relationship. You know, while that's going on, it's, it's, we're, we're also, you know, birthing that. Robert Vaughn record. So the Robert Vaughn album kind of comes out while all this is, is, is shaking down mm-hmm. in terms of what X's relationship is with Lionwind and what the expectations are and what their viewpoint of the label is and that sort of thing. Yeah, it was just a, a real messy time. So it, it all ended rather messily. Uh, I, I mean, Robert got some things done promotionally that nobody else got to do. I mean, he got on American Bandstand, for example. But by the time he made that American Manson appearance, radio was already off the justice, which was the the single off the album, the, the initial single, that had gotten a lot of ads the first few weeks and was going up the charts and, and, and you know on, on a radio level. same deal you know it, it was like you know it's happening but i'm having trouble getting the album in the store see that was never spelled out to us overtly by anybody you know yeah. uh, i don't recall having any sort of discussion with anyone so if some of their sales guys got in their head that we were just all christian bands and that's all we're going to be at that point that poisoned the entire relationship because then i felt like 
well, they're just pretending with us. You know, even if the producer likes us and the A&R guy likes us, if there's any part of this team that has made up their mind that all we are is just a front for a Christian organization and that basically that's all we are, are ever going to be, then we want it out of the deal immediately. And then we, we tried to get out of the deal. That's when it all hit the fan because <laughs> then we realized that the deal we had actually signed was a pressing and distribution deal. It wasn't uh, a subsidiary of Island in any way. It was a contractual financial uh, obligation on our part to stay in the contract for the length of the duration. And once we tried to get out, then they hit us with a, an exorbitant bill for, for all the pressing, all the publicity, all the manufacturing, everything. And uh, it was a bloodbath. So it really did end in tears. And it's very unfortunate because overall, you know, my dealings with Island and the people there were pleasant. I didn't consider it a, you know, a cantankerous relationship in any way. But once we heard that, we just felt like, all right let's just get out of this. This is a complete waste of time. And there were other things that made it obvious to us that it wasn't going to be any good with our band because we tried to set up a, a tour to promote our album. We even had the manager of Blue Oyster Cult and uh, we had a management team in place. We had everything ready to go and they just dropped the ball. They weren't able to deal with anything but you 2 especially at that time because there was only 30 people on staff at Island and it was a very tiny boutique label that depended on Warner Brothers and Atco and Atlantic and all of their sales team and promotional team to, to handle a, a success like U2. I've told people that U2 would have sold 10 times as many records if they had been on CBS or, or one of the other labels. So they even held U2 back by virtue of just their smallness, you know, and that would change later. But I'm glad that U2 had the success they had with Island in spite of that, but it really took the entire Warner's corporation to handle a success like that. So certainly all the rest of us just kind of got thrown under the bus, right. including the ComSat Angels, who we idolized. Their record came out around the same time ours did, and even one of our tracks appeared on an island sampler with them. Uh, they did pretty well with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but I think it was a little earlier. So that year, 1987, the Comsats couldn't get anywhere with their wonderful record. I mean, they put out this fantastic album called Chasing Shadows, and uh, it just fell stillborn. So, uh, you know, one way or another, no one was going to win on island that year. You know, in retrospect, I just look at that and go, the timing was off and, you know, we really had no business dealing with those people, but I'm grateful for the experience. I learned a lot. We got a lot of great press and a lot of great gigs and, you know, it was a feather in our cap to be on island at the time when U2 was. So sure. I'm proud of that, but it's a hollow victory. Now, Randy will talk about his first knowledge and experiences with Robert Vaughn. Well, I first got on the radar because, um, you know, I was already working the Exit Island stuff that 
Charlie had done and that the Sevens had done. When they were doing demos, I remember Jan pulling me into the studio and going, here's this band which is fine, what do you think? And I was very very impressed by what I was hearing. You know, I didn't really reconnect with that band until after the album was out. You know, where it's my job suddenly to, you know, take a pallet records and go move them across the country. So, you know, at that point, you know, I had very minimal contact with, with the band. I didn't really get to see them until live, in, until live they were showcasing uh, Post Island. You know, I, I loved the album when it came out. I just, you know, played it to death and I pushed it as hard as I could. And, and after the whole island thing kind of imploded, I remember, and I was starting to work with Mike, you know, on, on my table and Steve Scott and those guys. I just came to him at some point and just said, look, you know, these guys are working with me, doing some independent stuff. Are you interested? And he kind of shot back like, well, you know, that sounds really good, but I've already got a deal with Atlantic and, and so, you know, thank you very much. Like, well, that's great. You know, that was it. And I just went on to do other stuff. And then suddenly I get a call back from Robert. I don't know how many months went by, but, you know, several. Robert's calling me and went, well, I've been working on, on, on our album. And I went, really? Our, our album? What, what would that be? You know? And he just said, well, I've been working on a record and I'd like you to put it out. And, you know, what do you think? What happened to the, to the Atlantic deal? Well, you know, that, that didn't work out. Well, okay. So he started sending me batches of demos. And as, as Roe alluded to also, I mean, he was just extremely prolific, was constantly demoing. And so I remember him, you know, he sent, I don't know, 10, 11 songs. I just went, well, I love these five or six. You know, this is a good start. Well, I've already written another 10. There's, there's 10 more, you know. <laughs> and he just kind of kept doing this. And finally... I just remember when it got to like 30 songs on the board, <laughs> not <laughs> stop. I had to be able to choose what's going to go on the album. And, and it's great that I have something to choose from, but this is a lot of songs. So um, I just kind of chose what I thought was, was you know, the, the best batch of those demos. And then we just kind of went forward from that, that point on. And we would do an album called Songs from the River House. Angels cry upon the sacred hills Don't take nothing but your words of love to thrill I know one thing, I never won't let go I can see your beauty upon this misty road Cause your love really hurt Like a knife that cut deep So that's kind of past the context of the story, uh, you know, that we're working on here, which is, you know, the Love and War story. But, mm-hmm. but um, during the Love and War era, I, I really didn't have much contact at all with, with the band. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this campaign going, this crowdfunding campaign, to try to get uh, Love and War remastered, remixed, all that. Talk about that, what, why you want to do that. Well, I've been working on that idea or started initially working on that idea years ago uh, when everybody left Exit and you know, got their own deals and or did or did independent things like Vetra did and the Seven did initially and then they got deals. Um, at some point, you know, the Mary Neely, the Exit head, started giving back to people their masters and 
you know, Peacock got his back and, you know, everyone eventually kind of got back their stuff, except for Robert. I remember, you know, many years ago, I just, uh, this is probably around the time of River House, of just asking Mary, well, you know, much like the Lost Horizon project I did for Steve Scott, which was comprised of a couple albums that were recorded for release through A&M and through Island, but didn't come out. And then Mary just gave me the masters and said, do something. Since I already had that relationship, I just thought, well, maybe I can just do that with Love and More and just kind of get it out there. And she didn't really want to do that at that point. I think what she wanted to do was Robert to kind of ring her up and ask for me back. And Robert didn't want to do it. I think he'd already moved on from the album mm-hmm. uh, and from that period and then was more focused on what he was doing currently. So it didn't happen. A couple times over the years, I probably inquired and nothing. Uh, and then more recently, I, I think very early this year, I just went back and said, look, I would like to get this done. Is there any way we can do that? And we eventually came to an agreement uh, where I would be able to uh, take what master tapes were laying around and see what we had. And the idea that I had in mind was you know, put it out and then turn the tapes back over to Robert. And then once I was done with it, then those rights would revert over to him. And then he could do something with it down the road if he wanted to do it. Um, it's just one of those pet things that I just wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I thought it was worth reissuing. And even though I'm going through a lot of things, you know, personally, I, I still wanted to, to see if I could pull that off. Nothing is ever very easy. The process for pulling that together has been difficult, <laughs> you know, but I'm pretty excited about, about the, what would be the end result because in the end, unlike a lot of projects where people were reissuing things off of CDs or off of vinyl or those kind of things, we actually are doing it off the actual, you know, tapes, the actual masters or the actual multi-tracks, which is really nice. It's also more expensive to do, more time-consuming to do because you're, you know, baking tapes because, uh, you know, they've gone bad over time. And so most people have to do that with tapes that were formulated back in, the, back in that time frame. And then you um, need to have them transferred and some studios can handle certain formats and others can't. So some of those had to go to LA and a couple were done here. But I had to do all that just to kind of get an idea of what we had. And I just kept discovering really cool things. I mean, I found a a song that I knew had been recorded during the sessions but didn't come out on the album. Well, we not only have that mastered mix, but we also have the multi-track for it. So we also have an alternate mix now. Um, I'm finding things in the multi-tracks that didn't get used on the album that are just stunning. Uh, the quality of those multi-tracks is also better than the album itself, I think. And, and it just affords us an opportunity to really take a fresh look at look at that album. So the listener will get the core album remastered off the you know production tapes. But I had to go through six reels of production tapes to do it. There were multiple copies of those, but a couple of those were not in very good shape. Um, one of them was EQ'd really weird. So we finally found it the last set turned out to be the, the set. So that that's going to turn out very well. Hey, I wasn't lonely, and hey, I wasn't sad. 
so to even bring it to a point of, of, of you know, the crowdfunding kind of a idea, I had to spend a fair amount of money and time just to figure out what we have. It could be one CD and you just have the core up and a few things, but there's enough material there to, to do two. That's what I'm hoping to do is a, is a double. And uh, it'll, you know, essentially triple the amount of music that was previously available. It's just getting people, you know, aware of it. You know, that's, that's the challenge. But uh, once, I think once they are, and once we find out where all those people were that bought the album in the first place, because, you know, yeah, I didn't sell a ton back then, but it certainly sold fairly well. And certainly in the San Diego area did as well. So it's a lot. They were very, very popular down there. Now, you said Robert Vaughn had moved on from that material, but he knows what you're up to, right? And he basically has given his blessing? Oh, or? yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had talked about that in January, where it's just, you know, he was all for it. I did have to, you know, make sure that, A, he's on board, B, that I understood, understood what the process was going to be, too, that we had to go back to Mary and ask and sign an agreement and, you know, those kind of things. I don't think he wanted to be involved heavily in terms of, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, but now it's just a matter of, um, you know, making sure he's he's available uh, to me a little bit so I can ask some questions about the making of the record, which actually I might get to do tonight. So we'll see. Robert's been pretty much, you know, made a very conscious decision to kind of just live off, just kind of be off the grid for many years now. You know, he's not active in terms of, you know, recording or any of those things. I think he's just, I think he went through a lot by the mid-90s in terms of, of, the, of the business. And I think, much like myself, actually, by that same period, you know, he just kind of soured on a lot of that. So I don't I don't blame him. And there's been some, you know, personal trashing of the things he's had to deal with. So... It's a different project to push because unlike Fade the Sevens, you know, this is not an active entity that's recording. This is somebody who hasn't recorded since 94, essentially. You know, but I've been able to go to, uh, you know, engage other band members and talk to them and talk to, you know, Mike Harris, who was the uh, engineer for the sessions and, you know, just various people and get their, you know, memories and, and getting them uh, involved. Uh, as well. Uh, since that album's done, I teach a ten dollar and died of cancer several years ago. Uh, Steve Cokerhands, who was the uh, sax player in the band, uh, died, I believe, in a car accident in two thousand. And uh, so those guys are 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 sadly not not available to chat with, but. Um,
you know, that are, are being pushed around by governments, people that are poor. I mean, Border Town talks about, you know, he wrote, I mean, he would, be, he would be very aware of what was going on right across the border from San Diego, you know, people that were going through things there. And, you know, all that meant, meant a lot to him. So I, I think justice just kind of would, would touch on a lot of that, you know, just supporting uh, people's innate rights to justice, but not necessarily, you know, getting, you know, Palace of Tears touches on that as well, you know, and injustice, you know, where there's lines like, you know, behold, the river turns to red, where faithless countrymen are falling dead, while the rape of land for everything we own, you know, and, and looking inward and forward, you know, salvation, you know, mm-hmm. take me in your arms and make it right, show me justice through this never ending night. So it's just looking around him at that time, whether it was over in Nicaragua or in Mexico or even his own town mm-hmm. and just seeing what what people were, were coming up against. Right. So there's a social aspect to it. There's a political aspect to it. There's also a very spiritual aspect to it as well because he also uses a lot, a lot of, you know, revelations kind of imagery mm-hmm. throughout the album as well, which was actually kind of a big theme for him. I mean, he did that also previously when he was with the man called, called the New Presidents. At that time, those were all things that he really, uh, you know, wrote about. He once said something like, uh, you know, social, romantic, political, and, and religious themes. These are like the four categories of life. You know, they're all there. It's, it's my worldview, um, which is the only one I, I feel like I have the right to express. So, so that's what he was thinking about. But by the same token, I, I, I think that uh, at the time, uh, and this is a direct quote, he said, uh, I, I think that the exploitation of the common man is wrong politically and socially. People ask whether I'm left-wing or right-wing. Well, that's absurd. Both wings are heretical in the end. Both of them lead to destruction if you follow through with them. You just have to find the balance, the balance uh, within yourself and, and within what you consider to be normal uh, reality. At the time, with described himself as sort of a you know rebel uh, with a cause, you know, kind of idea. I mean, he was not shy right. <laughs> about, about those kind of things. You know, he felt like he had a social responsibility uh, in, in music. And, you know, during that period, I think, I mean, there were a lot of people that felt that, and he might have had a different, you know, take on it than, than most. But, you know, Bruce Coburn had very similar things on his heart as well. They, they just would have come to different places. And in my own discussions with, with Robert during the Rubber House period, he was always testing me. <laughs> you know, he would ask these questions or, make statements and just, just to see how I, I would react and what I would say because that's just part of his personality. Not because he was being hateful. He, he just wanted to kind of throw out the challenge and, and, and have that back and forth. So I think he was always aware and always in, inquisitive. Now, if you want to get in on this campaign, it's being held on the Indiegogo website. 
Just do a search for Robert Vaughn in the Shadows, Love, and War Remaster Project, and I'll put a link up on the Brofisticate webpage. If you're still in a mood to learn more about the Warehouse Alumni, Randy Layton came back by the woodpile on episode 203 to talk about his putting out material by many of the exit artists on his alternative label. 77's drummer Aaron Smith was on episodes 161 and 162 to tell stories about his days with not only the Sevens, but Romeo Void and The Temptations. Then Steve Scott discussed his art, faith, life, and incredibly interesting friends on episodes 226, 227, 230, 233, and 238. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.